More than 80 creatures lurked in the shadows of Jabba's palace. That's more monsters by far than have ever been assembled for a single movie. They all began to take shape like this, as small models called maquettes. Most of them were sculpted over and over again before they were approved. A team of 15 artists, aided by other craftsmen, worked 13 months, the last six of them on a day and night basis, to translate the maquettes into full-scale clay models of puppets and masks. The young Frankensteins frequently cracked up each other. It was a way of easing the strain of a long, hard job. Over the months of work, something of the personalities of their creators just naturally worked its way into the finished creatures. Star Wars fans and Moof Milkers everywhere, welcome to episode number 135 of Blast Points. This is Jason. And it's Gabe, too. And this week we are joined once again. We are honored to be joined by our unofficial third host, Mr. Tom Spina. (laughs) Thank you very much. Always good to be here. And we have another guest with us tonight, right? Our super secret special guest. I feel like we've got a uh, uh, an IP crossover coming. <laughs> never cross the streams. <laughs> we are joined tonight with Mr. Kirk Thatcher. Kirk, how are you doing tonight? Oh, it's great to be here. Thanks so much. Having a fantastic time here in the virtual world. Um, it's good. It's good. Thank you for having me on the show. Of course. Anytime. So for, for anyone that doesn't know, Kirk Thatcher, tell us out there why you're cool. Tell us... Tell us what's happening. I don't know if I'm cool, but uh, I'm interesting to people who like sci-fi stuff. Uh, well, I worked – my first movie I worked on was uh, Return of the – I always want to say Revenge of the Jedi because that's what it was called when I was working on it. But uh, Return of the Jedi, I made creatures with uh, Phil Tippett and the gang there. And then I went on to do Gremlins and Star Trek 2 II and 3 and then was associate producer in Star Trek 4, played the punk on the bus, which is probably the thing I'm most notorious for. And then went on to meet Jim Henson and work with him till he passed away and helped create the show Dinosaurs. And then co-wrote 
uh, Muppet Treasure Island and was a producer on Muppets Tonight and then started directing Muppet TV movies and videos and uh, a bunch of other stuff. And I was the voice of Greta Gremlin since Tom Spina just refurbished her. I, I have just learned uh, so many things. Yes, no, we were very lucky to have one of those. I did voices on, on Gremlins too. So, and yeah, I worked, I kind of do a bunch of weird, my IMDB looks like, wow, this guy is schizophrenic. <laughs> uh, can't figure out what he wants to do for a living uh anyway that's might be the reason why somebody might be interested in me besides my beautiful hair and beard of course yes you can edit you can edit all that out and just say i worked on jedi right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know it's funny that was most of my career that is i'm infamous for is for the first 10 years i started in 81 and by 91, had created Dinosaur. So in that time, I did all that stuff. The only thing that happened after that was, uh, well, Muppet Treasure Island and then writing and directing. I was basically with the Muppets almost full time after that. So it kind of goes from like, you know, 12 different franchises to one. Yeah, but that's a pretty good place to settle. No, it, no. Yeah, I'm not complaining. I'm just saying. <laughs> like, like, it's not like you wound up working at Starbucks. You know? <laughs> well, it's more like, so what have you done lately, Muppets? That's been my answer for the last 30 years. We've done Muppets. Yeah, yeah so, still pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, well, thank you. You're very kind. Okay, great. Thanks, guys. This has been fun. Man, Kirk, it's been a good time. Enough about me. Let's talk about... Um, young you in 1981 <laughs> young you the chinese designer who did most of the creatures on jedi yeah so so return of the jedi that's where you got started how did that happen how, how did how did that begin for you oh my god i've told the story a million times the short version is i met joe johnson when i was a kid when i was 14 star wars had come out my mom came home from church and said i met a lady whose son worked on star wars and oh my god who is it or what did he do she said or her name's, you know, like Mrs. I forgot her first name, you know, something Johnson. I'm like, was it Joe Johnson? Like, I already had his sketchbook and and uh, the you know the boards and stuff that they were selling. And they're like, oh yeah, that's it. Joe is her son. I'm like, oh my god. So I he was very kind and showed me where I got a tour. I grew up about a mile and a half from where the original ILM was in Van Nuys. Um, so uh, went over there. He gave me a tour and we became friends. I mean, you know, not like best pals, but he was very kind and would, you know, listen to my blather about what I wanted to do and show him my drawings and stuff. And, and I said pretty much, look, I'm, I was, I think a 10th grader or ninth grade or 10th grade. That was ninth grade when it came out. Uh, so I said, I want to do, I want to work on those kind of movies. I want to do what you do or, you know, storyboard and design spaceships and creatures, mainly creatures. And he said, well, you know, keep drawing and all that. So I did. And three years later, I graduated high school and drove up my brother and some friends to the Bay area to just hang out. We went to Yosemite and, and kind of stayed in San Francisco, sort of a, a rumspringer of uh, graduating high school. And, uh, I got Joe to give us a tour of ILM and, um, I'd given him, I, when we, on that trip, I'd given him a creature I'd made for a friend's movie in high school. It's kind of this big fat goblin thing, very much like the goblin King from, uh, the Hobbit, but with, uh, deep, more demonic with horns and uh, he had glass eyes. It was, you know, he wasn't terrible. But um, so I gave that to Joe as a gift because I was an idiot. I'm like, here, I made a monster. <laughs> and, uh, he, he, I found out he stuck it up in the creature shop and it became like their little mascot. And so nine months later, after a, a semester at UCLA, I uh, called him up because they had announced they were working on the third Star Wars movie. And I said, hey, man, can I work on 
I'll make coffee. I'll sweep the floors. I'll just do, you know, mail runs. I don't care. I just want to UCLA is, is a great college, but it's boring as hell. I've been making movies since I was 12 and they won't let me touch a camera for two more years. Um, and he said, it, well, this was the fun part. That's he makes you think, you know, someone up there likes me. He said, who did you talk to? I'm like, what do you mean? He said, somebody who told you, I said, I don't know what you're talking about. He said, I put your name on a list yesterday for people they should consider for the creature shop. Cause George wants to build one here instead of in England. Cause he wants more control. He wants to be more involved. Uh, you know, he just doesn't want to get back then. There was no internet. You couldn't send pictures and things. So, uh, I was like, seriously, he's like, yeah, <laughs> I literally just, nobody told you. I said, no, I just, it was a Tuesday morning. And I like read about the movie being starting up and I wanted to work on it. So I went up and interviewed and I, uh, you know, I, I would love to say that I was some kind of creature genius, but I wasn't. I just had a lot of this. What I'd done was realize, well, no one's going to hire me to do the creatures or direct the movie. But if you have the skill set to make the creatures, like if the, the, this day and age, I'd say, well, if somebody knew Photoshop and, you know, ZBrush and, and Maya, then, you know, you're not going to go direct an animated film. You can probably get a job on it. So that would be equivalent in the analog world was I knew how to mix plaster, make molds, uh, poor latex, poor urethane foam. I knew how to mix the paint and paint it. And I had artistic skills. I'd, I'd been kind of self-taught as an artist with a couple art classes. So anyway, I went up, got interviewed. And because I was cheap and I had the skill set to do grunt work, I got a job on the creature shop and worked on Jedi for almost a year and a half and got to go on location. I was in Yuma, uh, Arizona for six weeks or so. And, and then again in Brookings, Oregon for about the same amount of time doing all the, the, Java's sand barge in this over the Sarlacc pit scenes and then all the stuff in the in forests of Endor. Um, so it was amazing. And then worked, I pretty much molded, cast, or painted almost every creature on Star Wars, or sorry, on Jedi, except for Jabba and Bib Fortuna. And then a couple small, like Tony McVeigh did uh, Salacious all on his own. Like that was his just little side project. He, he invented him and, and he became... A, more of a character or more of a featured character uh, during shooting. He was just another creature. Uh, Cause George essentially said, all right guys do a bunch of maquettes. So one of the things we were doing at night was just sculpting and sculpy little design maquettes. Cause none of us had the script. I mean, I think Phil Tippett might've seen scenes, but the rest of them were just told there's a party with a bunch of aliens. So it's like the cantina scene times 10. So we were just doing things ranging from just over the head mask designs to, I was designing I think I did one head mask and two full creatures because I was like, well, I, I I was just thinking of gags. Like if it's a party, what would be funny little gags with aliens? So I did two or three. I only did three or four, I guess. And uh, anyway, George didn't pick any of mine, <laughs> although he, I was told he liked them. I, I, he made one of them. Joe told me that. It made one of them made him chuckle, um, <laughs> but he thought it was too much work. Well, because they were a whole scene. Like one was this creature in like a big steel tank with uh, so it was like an aquatic creature that would be there in a you know some sort of liquid, and there was another creature sneaking over the side with a straw, drinking out of it. Well, this guy and it had like a shower head over. It, it was very goofy. Um, and the other one was this. I think they actually he's becomes part of. Star Wars canon, they call him Rock, what is it, Rock Spider or something? Um, they named him. I, we just, we didn't have a name for him. 
but oh, rock slugs, I think. But they're, they're in the one of the books is like described as like, oh, these creatures are, you know, and, and someone said they might have even been put one in um, like Clone Wars or one of the animated series. But uh, essentially after the design phase, I just was working, molding, casting, painting and finishing again, pretty much everything that ran through the the Marin County creature shop, which was probably 90 percent of the creatures. When you're talking about making little gags out of stuff, is that like, uh, uh, like, do you, do you feel like that Mark Davis kind of connection that, that imagining pirates of the Caribbean, you know, some driving by and got to get it in a second. That is the perfect analogy. Exactly. Mark Davis would do these little, you know, like one panel cartoons that would be a scene in, you know, pirates or haunted mansion. And it was exactly that. You would look at this little macadre or little scene of two or three creatures and kind of get it without knowing anything about them, just knowing that, well, because the other one was this, again, I thought they got like slug, spider slug or slug crab, but it, it's pulling, it's, it's got this green rocky exterior that looks kind of squishy and it's got these four claws that are coming out from its back and it's pulling back its skin essentially and there's this kind of slimy skull underneath with two little beady eyes and this giant tongue rolling out. And on one of these crab kind of spider-like claws is an apple that's been skewered. So you get this, like, you know, he, he skewered an apple slug. I think that's what they call him. Yeah. Apple slug. There you go. Apple slug. It's like Slimer peeling his skin off with claws. It's, it's demented, you know. <laughs> it's demented, yeah. I think, I forget which one gave George. The other one looks like a weird, I don't know, it's just a weird aquatic creature, but. Was that the one with kind of the hole in his head? Oh, yeah. That's the third one. That was the overhead mask. <laughs> uh, Joe Johnson nicknamed him Hamilton Beach because he he's smoking a pipe. <laughs> and I made the, the smoke out of cotton. And uh, so he looks very much like a like a Zen master. He's got a, his nostrils are on the top of his head. And uh, he's just very uh, – his skin is very dry and kind of uh, deeply wrinkled. And Joe called him Hamilton Beach because he looked like a Hamilton Beach mixer. <laughs> At least according to Joe, we were all friends. <laughs> you know, we all had dumb names for. I mean, some of them were called. You know, well, Mon, uh, the Mon Calamari was just originally called. Um, oh, what do we call him? Well, there was Squidhead, which was the one who had the tentacles coming out of the mouth, and then um, I think we just called him Calamari Man, and then George called him the Mon Calamari and Admiral Akbar. The naming process is really funny. The way George. And again, I've said this before because it's true. Um, Nian Num was actually number nine. We just numbered them. We had like 60 of these maquettes and Nian Num was number nine. And so George just went, all right, it'll be Nian Num, which just is number nine scrambled. <laughs> when, when you guys were in there and he was like going over maquettes and he's like, this guy's Nian Num and they're Mon Calamari. What was the attitude? Were people just like, oh, of course, yes. Or is anyone like, man, this guy, this guy's nuts. No, he didn't. There wasn't a Nian it's not Harry Potter. There wasn't a naming ceremony. <laughs> 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 I mean, he would just look at him and go, uh, okay, I like, I like this one. And, uh, this, this would be fun. He might, he has a very dry sense of humor. He's a, kind of a personable guy. He didn't like crowds, but when it was just like four or five people, he'd, he'd be kind of, you know, he'd make silly, he'd kind of joke around dryly, but he'd be like, you know, this would be funny as a, you know, co-pilot or something. Or what if, what if this guy was, uh, you know, massaging Jabba's butt or whatever. <laughs> just kind of look at him and, and kind of riff on it. Um, but he didn't name them in front of us. They, we just found, in fact, I don't think we, they were named in the script. They just named them for the toys. I think that was, he, he figured out, well, 
uh, cause we just had to call him something. So, uh, so salacious, uh, salacious was originally salacious. Um, and then George named him salacious C crumb. I had no idea why, but that's <laughs> what I mean. He would just do it after the fact. And I don't think it was even during the movie. Cause you, no one ever calls him salacious. Uh, I think it was when they were saying, here are the creatures, what are the toys? And he had to name them. So it might've been something he did. Like, so obviously Bib Fortuna, Jabba, um, who else was named? Well, the Ewoks had names that you never heard. I mean, we would call it, we knew that it was low gray and, and wicked and all that, but they were never spoken in the movie. I kind of like that. Like, I feel like a lot of new movies make a real effort to shoehorn names in over and over and over again. And I just think back to these old shows where it's, you know, the story carries you, you wouldn't necessarily hear these people's names over and over and over again. You know, if, if Return of the Jedi was shot now, at some point, Princess Leia would come out and say, I've spoken to Chief Chirpa and Logray when Wicked <laughs> yeah. has brought me forth. You know, like, yeah. it feels like that's just what all the new movies do, where back then they, it just was. And it was more natural and more realistic that way. I agree 100 percent. And so, I mean, but we we needed well, again, in the script, it would specify you know, low gray blesses, blah, 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 while Chirpa does this. But most of the other Ewoks, we just said, you know, that's Debbie Carrington. That's Kevin Thompson. That's, you know, uh, Debbie. Yeah. A moment of silence. She passed away this year. She was one of the main, uh, Ewok performers just by, and it wasn't until we were actually shooting that they realized how great she was. So they started giving her featured bits. She was a real person. Yeah. She got, uh, she was the, the one who, who survives the crash. And, you know, her friend, little friend Ewok dies. And it's just like the saddest moment ever. And, and I think she ad-libbed that. I don't think that was scripted. I think she just played it that way. Or, you know, kind of came, again, a lot of that came out uh, while we were shooting. Um, Dave Tomlin, who was an amazing character, that guy, he was our first AD. And he had this deep voice like this. I was like, all right, everybody. And this guy had like first AD'd Gandhi and like David <laughs> pictures. So, and he just had this very, he was, imagine like a beer barrel with little legs on it. And he's just big chest that goes into his belly and uh, this kind of deep voice, uh, very, I assumed he's British. It sounded kind of Australian, but (laughs) British, Um, but just, you know, very deep and very commanding. Like you could not, not obey his commands. And um, so George and I guess Robert Watts decided while we were there, well, first unit was shooting just you know, Carrie, Mark, Harrison stuff, he he let Dave Tomlin go off and shoot a bunch of Ewok gags, whether it was Ewoks beating up stormtroopers or Ewoks, you know, <laughs> loading catapults. A lot of the second unit um, Ewok gags or shenanigans, if you will, was Dave Tomlin uh, being given kind of free reign to go. And that was we were just making stuff up while we were shooting. I mean, you know, some of it was like the direction is the Ewoks gather rocks and put them in a catapult, but the actual business of, instead of just, you know, grabbing a rock and sticking the catapult, the fun and games, if you will, was uh, Dave Tomlin and, and the Ewoks just, were all just kind of figuring out. So that was fun. That was a lot of uh, fun. And then there was just other giant scenes where you have, you know, 20 stormtroopers and 30 rebels and the and at, at, and a, you know, explosions going off and 20 Ewoks running. And it was like, hell's a poppin', but 
<laughs> it was amazing. I mean, I was the <laughs> it was the first movie I'd worked on, so I kind of you know, everything went to downhill from there. What was that like then going, I mean, you're starting and you're assuming you're just going to be, you know, making molds and, and painting things. And next thing you know, you're on set, you know, helping film things. Like, what was that transition like? Like, how quickly did that happen? It was a year. We worked on the creatures. I started in like maybe end of February, early March, and we didn't go on location for a year. They went to London in January. Or I think we shipped everything out like end of like after Thanksgiving, before Christmas, sometime around then the end of 81. And then they started shooting in London, I think in January, maybe even the end of uh, 81. So in 82, they started filming. And so they were filming for three or four months before uh, they came to Yuma, which is where we were first. So we weren't there in the middle of summer. So we were there like April, May. And I was there probably for two weeks prior to uh, photography because we were building the Sarlacc pit. That was crazy because the Sarlacc pit was just a foam rubber hole or a foam rubber uh, ensconced uh, funnel at the bottom of this or in the center of this huge platform they build about 80 feet in the air. And Jabba's a full scale Jabba's barge was on one side on these giant uh, steel girders that so it could rock a little bit. And it had a big boiler in it to, to you know, pour out steam from the vents and uh, again, it was full size. So this thing was, I don't know, 80, 100 feet across uh, and, you know, 30 feet wide uh, or long and like 30, 40 feet across at its widest. It was just enormous. So there had been a team building that for like four or five months prior to us getting there. But then we and they trucked all the sand up. So, again, imagine this giant like football field sized platform raised to not only hold this barge, but also uh, probably eight inches of sand on top of it. And then the skiff was on, mounted on steel uh, pillars, and then an entire crew with cameras and everything. And in the center of it was this sarlacc pit, which again was just a hole with, or I should say, a cone, uh, probably twenty feet uh, from the sand level, which was supposedly ground level, to the opening, which uh, was just these uh, foam uh, rubber that we carved and coated in latex skins. And, um, you know, it was like a giant sphincter in the middle of the sand. And <laughs> so what, what's crazy, and this is one of my stories, I think I say there was a ILM reunion, 40th year, a 40 year reunion last or last year. And I uh, was, had a little, they just brought us in individually or in pairs. So Phil Tippett and I went in there and, and told stories. And one of the ones I remember was we're in this funnel shape made of white, probably eight inch urethane foam rubber. So when the stunt, the, so when the stuntmen fell in it, they didn't hurt themselves. Um, and that was <laughs> not a great idea. As it turned out, like the first day, all the stuntmen are there testing it again. This is before shooting. So it was like two, three weeks before shooting. Like one stuntman goes down, the foam rubber catches foot. He snaps his ankle. Another guy goes down, breaks his leg or breaks his arm. So we lost two of our stuntmen the first day of testing it. <laughs> Um, and so they're like, wow, why is it made of foam rubber? We're like, well, you tell us what to make it out of it. You guys don't get hurt. Um, and so they're like, well, and, and we were planning, but we're, you know, coating it in latex so they wouldn't catch on it so much. And then they had to adjust how they fell into it. So I think they kind of rolled with their shoulders instead of feet first. But anyway, we're in this white, because urethane foam when it's, you know, fresh is, is basically just an ivory white. And it's essentially a large parabolic a solar oven with our heads in the middle of it because we're trying to <laughs> glue the skin down and the glue we're using 
it's called barge cement and they, they didn't have the VOC laws. So what it exo, you know, it, when it evaporated, the, the carrier, the thing that the, I guess, thinned the glue was, you know, like naphtha or toluene or something that's incredibly toxic and makes you high as, <laughs> yeah. gets you very high and dizzy. So we're in a hundred and 110 degree heat in the desert, sitting in a solar oven, essentially Phil Tippett and I on ladders trying to brush down the bar cement, bringing up like three by four or probably two by three sheets of latex. And it's, we've got bar cement on the other side. So just fuming up all our noses the whole time. We've got masks on, but you know, when you're talking and working, they don't do a great job. And then trying to lay it down on the, on the urethane before it just dries out and it doesn't really stick very well. All the while sand is falling down. So it was just like kind of an exercise in insanity. But, um, I got so goofy high that, and we were always, we were holding it in with these long hat pins, like eight inch, six inch hat pins. You'd, you'd brush the, a guy would be down at the bottom. Oh, I didn't explain this. So underneath the opening where these kind of sphincter pedals are, it's another 20 foot drop to the, to a, a pit in the sand that was dug, which had uh, airbags. So when the stuntmen fell through, they didn't just land, you know, at the bottom of the mouth, they had to go down into, you know, an endless void. Um, so there's another 20 feet and every morning we found out that guys had to go in and clear out the rattlesnakes that would nest <laughs> because it was cool. So it'd get really hot during the day. And then the snakes at night it would go into this, you know, nice little pit they'd found. And it turned out this was the, uh, this is where we were working. So that, that made Phil feel really confident. Um, <laughs> so guys would come in at like six thirty seven in the morning, uh, and just pull out the rattlesnakes, I think. And they were very cool. They didn't kill them. They just rounded them up in a bag or a box and then, you know, trucked them out five miles away. Um, so <laughs> this is the environment we're in anyway. So one guy's down there, I think it was Tony McVeigh or Randy Dutcher, maybe brushing uh bar cement onto these skins that we'd been making in the desert heat, which was great. Cause the latex cured Tom would know about this. It cures in like three minutes. You just brush it onto a plaster uh, skin uh, sheet and you pull it off. So we just had stacks of these. So someone was putting the barge on, handing it up to us, we're brushing barge cement on the urethane and then putting the skin down and pinning it with these hat pins. Well, we've been doing this for a few hours and, and just, I was goofy as hell. Um, I was also 19 years old. Um, so I feel like, I feel like this is the setup for a really good decision. Yeah. I made a bad decision, which was Phil's butt was right above me on one of the ladders. And I had this big hat pin and I looked down to Randy Dutra and I like mime, like sticking him in the butt, like a three stooges thing or a, Tom and Jerry cartoon. And he starts laughing and going, yeah, thumbs up, do it, do it. So I was like, all right. So I just <laughs> stuck this hat pin in Phil's rear end. He of course yelped and basically felt like just let go of the ladder and slid down on top of me. We both, <laughs> and he's, he's bright red because a, we're getting baked by the sun. So, and he's a ginger. So the sun, you know, he just, he's out in the sun for two seconds and he, he turns red as a beet. and he's sweating and he's just furious and he has every right to be. And he's like, what the, what were you doing? What were you thinking? I was like, I, I, I'm sorry. I thought it would be funny. He's like, I got it. <laughs> and so we were recounting this story of the ILM thing. And, and I said, I, it's amazing. You didn't fire me. He goes, I couldn't fire you. I go, why? He goes, because I needed you. I was like, Oh, <laughs> you know, the interesting thing there is, you know, uh, Kirk was right. It was funny. Just, it took about 30 years till it could be funny. <laughs> Yeah, now it's hilarious. Yeah, it's just all in the timing. I said, someday in the future, there'll be a thing called the internet, and there'll be a podcast on this internet, and I'm going to tell this story. <laughs>
So anyway, lots of dumb stories like that. Just a bunch of guys. I mean, what the interesting thing to me, or I think that's interesting in general, is that the crew, Chris Wallace was originally going to run the creature shop with Phil Tippett because Phil was an animator and, you know, done masks and stuff. But Phil had done like Galaxian and things for a dollar, you know, or he just made a ton of creatures for not a lot of money. And, and George was always, you know, frugal. <laughs> so Chris and Phil were going to run it together, but then Chris decided to go off and start his own shop instead of working for George. So Phil was now in charge, but Chris had hired almost all the crew uh, that weren't uh, the ILM regulars, which were Phil, uh, Ken Ralston, Dave Carson, and Tom Santamond. So those guys were the core. But then there was another six or seven of us who'd never worked in a career. I mean, I'd never worked at a job before. Uh, one of the guys was one of the maintenance people, a guy named Dan Howard, who was an artist. There, Everyone was an artist, but no one had done creatures. So Dan had made like costumes with his partner, Jeannie. They were uh, like had done like, um, I guess you'd call them walk arounds or, or mascots for like ice capade shows or something. Um, and then, uh, well, Stuart Ziff had worked on Ghostbusters, I think, but he was a mechanical guy. So yeah, no one had specifically done creatures before out of, out of the rest of the crew. So um, it was a bit of a social or experiment, not a social experiment so much, but um, it was, I mean, that's one of the reasons why I got hired. I actually had done a lot of the things you need to do to make a creature where everyone else had artistic skills but hadn't actually not applied them to monster making. So I think Phil's stress, I couldn't understand why he was so stressed. He's like, dude, we're making Star Wars. <laughs> George Lucas wants us to make a bunch of monsters. Why are you so stressed? Um, it's because you're sticking me in the behind with a hat bit. I didn't, I didn't get it. And then I realized, oh, as an adult, like if someone had given me a crew, it was like, no, it's going to be great. You have, uh, you don't have a lot of money. Because, uh, you know, I'm not going to go crazy. And um, two, two-thirds of your crew has never done this before. But good luck. And you, we need everything by uh, November. Um, so, yeah. It was uh, his str- – I mean, it's amazing he didn't hurt anybody or himself. But uh, we, we pulled it off and everything went to, to London. The crazy thing is I was talking about someone. I, I didn't realize how much of a puppet movie Jedi is. There's a lot of puppets in it. I mean, even, you know, I mean, not just the obvious ones like Salacious and the – I don't know what they call the rock monster outside of Jabba's palace that, you know, eats a bug um, and just that little cutaway sequence. Um, but also the Rancor. A lot of people don't know the Rancor pit monster was a was a hand puppet or a rod puppet or a little bit of both. Um, it, was a, it was a hand puppet with rotted arms and legs. Um, he was only – he's the size of Kermit the Frog, um, actually a bit smaller even. Uh, and Jabba's a giant hand puppet and um, Neam Nub. Most people don't know that Neam Nub was a hand puppet or his head – when he's in the um, cockpit, is uh, he's puppeted by uh, a lovely British guy named Mike Quinn, who's worked with the Hensons pretty much since Star Wars, or uh, worked with actually he was working with Hensons on Dark Crystal and Labyrinth, so he's been a, a regular go-to puppeteer since the seventies. Um, and he was a kid too. Like it's funny, there's like three or four of us who are all like eighteen, nineteen years old uh, on Jedi, um, and we we. I didn't meet Mike until much later because I, I was going to go to London when I got sick. So uh, he wasn't uh, in Yuma or uh, Brookings, Oregon. So we, we met up years later at, at Henson's and realized we both worked on the same movie. Uh, another another couple guys, same thing. We'd all been on Jedi but had not met each other. The thing, besides being a, a big puppet movie, with I was trying to think there was another couple creatures um, – 
Uh, oh, size noodles. Yes, size noodles and droopy. Well, droopy. No, sorry, droopy was a costume. Size yeah. noodles and the yuzum. So that's what I was getting to. There was actually other creatures that you never see. I don't know if they were turned into toys or not, but there was probably another six creatures that are background characters that are just literally in the shadows. I mean, watching the movie, I'm like, holy cow, we we built 60 creatures and you see maybe 35 of them. Um, there was a thing called Rock Lobster. I don't know what it became. George called it, but it was just basically a big crustacean-y thing. And we built that and we built this thing called the Yuzum. Love the Yuzum. Yeah. So that was made, never seen. Um, there was a big fluke thing that looked like a big green <laughs> plant creature with a spear which we made, I don't think it's, I mean. It, oh, uh, a man man probably. Yeah. Yeah, man man yeah, because we called him Banana Man, so he's a man man <laughs> um, Yeah, I mean, I don't even remember. It's been so long. But, uh, yeah, I mean, and uh, there was these two giraffe-headed things that Phil had done that were basically just big uh, marionettes. They were just kind of hung from uh, wires and bobbed around. And I don't even know if you see them at all. Uh, watching the movie. I haven't watched it frame at a time, but there was a lot of stuff that just went unseen. It's the same way with the cantina scene. You know, you go through it and uh, you get, uh, um, I think it's technically called the given, but John Berg called him skull guy. Uh, yeah. It kind of looks like the scream. It's just this really cool design. Ralph McQuarrie sketched it. John built it. John wore it on set with his, uh, with his sneakers on and uh, it never shows up in the movie really, you know, you barely, uh, you, uh, you don't even really get a look at it, but then you get these great behind the scenes photos and it gives something for people like me and, and Pablo and everybody to, to dissect years later and talk about at comic conventions. Yeah. Well, and, and I don't even know, I'm sure it's all cataloged. I mean, the, the, between the company and the fans, but, um, I don't know why we George didn't or Richard I should say or both of them really uh Richard Marquand I mean um because in the cantina they shot inserts of you know at least six or eight of the stuff that the guys had added yeah and there really weren't I mean the inserts were on salacious and you know the pig guards were featured the Gamorian guards um but they had actual like um shtick I think salacious kind of came out of him being uh just funny and on the set and Tim Rose doing a great job with him um, you know, and the Akbar, those guys had points and, and plot points attached to them. Whereas all these other things, I thought when we were building it, I thought, well, he's going to do like in the cantina shoot, you know, even just a quick angle, one looking or blinking or, you know, some weird noise coming out of his mouth, but didn't do that. And I don't know if they shot it and just the movie was long anyway. There was a lot of plot going on. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I was a little bummed when I went to the screening, like, man, all that work. And you see about six of them. I always kind of liked that. That even, I remember being a kid and having like the Return of the Jedi storybook. I would see like photos of aliens and creatures from Jabba's palace where I'd be like, maybe I do. Because back then you could just see in the theater, you know, you didn't even have VHS. Maybe it would play on HBO or something and be like, I don't think I remember seeing this guy. But it's something I've always liked about Jabba's palace. And Tom, feel free to leave right now. But that there's not a lot of money. There's not a lot of money shots of the weird, awesome creatures. And like, as a little kid, like going to see it in the movie theater, you're just like, you're looking, and Jabba's Palace, all the corners are dark. So you're looking in all these dark corners, like what's over there? This place is filled with the most awesome things I've ever seen. Well, it's true. And then you look at something like uh, the, I don't know what you call it, the poker scene or, you know, what's her name's uh, bar cantina in, well, the poker scene in in, um, 
Solo, and then uh, what's her name? The new character in um, The Force Awakens, where the uh, Maz, yeah, yeah Maz's place, and everyone does. You know, there is a lot more going on, but again, it, it gets it's well lit, but it's just in the background. So that is sort of the Star Wars tradition: is is make a bunch of stuff and only really feature three or four, but have the background filled. It it adds depth to the universe, I suppose. But on the creature guy side of it, it's always a little heartbreaking. It's, yeah, it's frustrating. You spend weeks on something to make it. You know, we're painting in eyelashes and pupils to look cool, and you, it's it's a shadow, and you're like, hey, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> If I had known, I could just worry about silhouettes. <laughs> right, right, yeah. You could, have got, you could have got so much more sleep. George didn't want to spend – well, like the Ewoks. So we, the Stuart Freeborn sent over an Ewok head or two to show us what they were. And I remember we kind of looked at it, we being Phil and the Creature Shop guys, and went, oh, my God, this is just basically a bucket with fur on it and two vacuum-formed eyes and some teeth and little – I mean, we, we, we need to make – we wanted to make uh, close-up heads, like eight or ten articulated heads with brows and lips and uh, eyes that weren't just, um, you know, a vacuum-formed uh, smoked acrylic. Uh, and so we actually, I think Dave Carson sculpted it, and, and he and I punched the hair on it and uh, made this more, I would say, biologically uh, believable Ewok head. And it didn't change the design really, but just gave it eyelids and, you know, and saying we can make, again, eight to ten of these for the, the main characters. And uh, George, I remember that meeting because I was there. He's like, no, you don't need to. We don't need to spend the money because they're just I just want to make the new teddy bear. <laughs> I was like, wow, um, he's not, you know, I mean, you got to give it to the guy who knew what he wanted to do. Um, and so it was frustrating because we're like, geez, these things don't really hold up under a close up. But, uh, you know, George knew what he, like I said, he knew the the medium because nobody, I don't think anyone complained that Ewoks didn't look realistic. I think they found them either too cute or annoying, but nobody went, their eyes don't blink. Or did they? Maybe they did. Now they blink. Now they do. Yeah, now digitally. The magic of computers and the future. Yeah. Well, then, and then speaking of Ewoks, I got to do one of the two Ewok movies. The first one was A Caravan of Courage. Is that what it was called? Yes. Yeah, the Ewok movie. That was <laughs> that was fun for me because I just got to hang out with like the eight best Ewok performers who were friends from the movie. And we were just shooting around Marin County, so we weren't flying around the planet. And uh, it was like a three or four week shoot. And uh, <laughs> it was fun and silly. And, you know, we, we I don't think anyone was under any um, illusions of what it was. <laughs> Considering the main the main stars were a, a what a six year old girl and her twelve thirteen year old brother, did did you guys make any changes to the Ewok costumes for that, or was it pretty much off the shelf? Just start shooting. I think we just refurbished a lot of what we did on in Yuma was just making sure they didn't fall apart. So I think for that movie we uh, upgraded uh, the you know the main six characters or whatever were in that, and uh, I don't think I think we just refurbished them. They weren't uh, rebuilds. A lot of hands need to be repaired and feet because they, you know, they're out in the real dirt in the real world. So they, yeah. And a lot of those, uh, I, I remember the, the, um, just from when Stuart retired and, and the material that he had uh, in his archive at the time, there's a, uh, a lot of those fingertips were just thin foam latex, which, yeah, yeah. no, and they just, we, that I, I'm not kidding when I said, uh, yeah, at least he made the feet out of like a heavy, um, what do they call it? Like, you know, uh, gum, like yeah. gum rubber. It was, it was like shoe, shoe rubber. 
but the the hands were just yes like not even slip latex but was and it it shredded so we were patching them every night and painting them with the just so it lasts the next day you know you never saw one in a close-up but it would be non-professional to go nah you're never gonna see it (laughs) well because you know that's the day you're gonna see it (laughs) yeah exactly george's gonna say i want a close-up of him loading rocks into the catapult you're like (laughs) patch 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 (laughs) yeah but it, to answer your first question, like 20 hours ago, uh, what was it like? It was amazing. I mean, I, I, you know, I was, I mean, I can't, I look back and I'm like, I wouldn't have hired me. I mean, if I was, well, I'm my age now and some 19 year old, I guess, I guess that's not true. Some 19 year old came to me and he's like, I can do this in ZBrush and I know how to do Photoshop. And I'm, I'm just trying to think of the equivalent or, you know, he can sculpt an old cast. I mean, that's how everyone kind of got their start back in the day. I mean, there was no schools for this stuff. So um, considering the time and all that, I was somebody who was self-taught just from annoying people like John Chambers and Craig Reardon and just, you know, screwing up my mom's sink (laughs) with plaster and and figuring it out on my own and reading whatever I could find, uh, which are like technical manual or trade journals for like mold makers. So you, you you know, just like today, you have to have a lot of, um, you have to be a bit of a self-starter. But today there's just such an advantage, you know, I think. Oh, well, yeah, but that's, yeah, it's crazy. I mean, there's like six makeup schools yeah. in L.A. now. That well, and, I mean, how you can make... go to YouTube and figure out how to use any material yeah. within about, you know, 15 minutes. Uh, and It's crazy. You know, I think back to just trying to figure out where can I buy a bucket of slip latex? You know, yeah. 1985, I yeah. had, you know, Long Island, New York. Uh, the magic store near me sold like little four ounce bottles of it that you could buy around Halloween time, but that wasn't enough to fill a mold to make a mask. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I remember you, I, you, I would have like three phone books for the Valley and for Los Angeles and for, you know, um, Ventura. And you would just go through uh, industrial supplies, um, you know, dental supply. I mean, you had like back in the day to have a creature shop, you had like, 12 catalogs from different companies to and some of them were just you know for like uh, ultracal and things like that it was just a builder supply i never actually knew what builders use ultracal for because it's not a cement you would build with yeah i don't know that's a good question i know i never asked i'm always like well i know what i use it for if someone out there knows please tweet at us or something Solve this mystery for us. What the heck is UltraCal used for other than making monsters? Or, yeah, making molds. But uh, maybe that's – yeah. But uh, it was crazy. Back in the day, there was no interwebs with all this information and we didn't have the juggle. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the, the one advantage was living in L.A. and probably New York is that – but particularly L.A., there was a movie studio system here. So if you got – like John Chambers was an incredible – uh, resource. And I remember because of, I was a monster kid and there were, you know, the Rick Bakers of the world and we all kind of helped each other out or at least would share information because there was a paucity of it. I guess paucity in a sentence. Um, <laughs> and uh, so I remember uh, Rick and Craig Reardon was incredibly helpful uh, when I was in my early teens, like 13, 14, 15, he'd done a um, article for a magazine called Cinemagic. I think it was. Oh yeah. It was Cinemagic or uh yeah, I think it was Cinemagic. It was p- produced out of like Baltimore, but it was effects fans who were like Harryhausen fans. And he'd done an article on a stop motion uh, puppet a little film he'd made. The Wages of Sin. Wow, it's crazy. I remember that. And um, 
what was great was uh, Craig then went up to ILM to work on Poltergeist. So I got to hang out with him because I'd met him like once, mainly I just talked to him on the phone. And uh, so we became you know, buddies and then I still talk to him to this day. Uh, lovely guy, incredibly talented, very, very kind with his uh, p- patience and time when I was an annoying kid with questions. All right. Yeah. <laughs> and that's it. Bye. Thanks, guys. I got to go. I'm very important. I'm very important. I got to go. <laughs> Do you remember, see, you were 19 years old. Do you remember what your first day, like after you were hired and like, here you go. What, what was that? What was that first day like? Very underwhelming. So because, <laughs> Because they were built, I mean, the, the creature shop, what they called the rubber room, was just a room about a 24 by 24 foot room in the second floor of ILM because there wasn't, there wasn't a big creature producing facility. So they, when they gearing, gearing up for Jedi, one of the first things they did was George leased or bought the, the industrial buildings behind ILM. And so there was two huge bays, like the size of a good size shopping or like a supermarket. And that was where the creature shop was going to be. There was a paint room and a main sculpting room and offices and a supply room. And so my first day was they led me over to this industrial, you know, park building behind ILM. And there was a scissor lift and an airless sprayer in there and about, you know, 60 gallons of off, you know, eggshell Navajo white paint. And, and the ceilings of these things were like 20 feet tall. Because, you know, it was a big industrial thing with big elephant roll-up doors. And they're like, okay, your first job is to paint this building. <laughs> the inside, not the outside. And, well, there's a lot more, you know, surface area on the inside. The outside would have been fast. So for about six days, I was up and down in a scissor lift with an airless sprayer, spraying the ceiling and the walls of, of our workspace. Um, and then I think the next week was putting together metal shells for the store. So not, no creature work at all. I don't think I started doing creature stuff for about three or four weeks. And then when they, you know, then I helped move all the plaster and it was all the stuff was getting delivered um, and set it up. And then I set up the paint. I kind of ran, set up and ran the paint room uh, because I'd done that. It was at that time you did it with, uh, was it best test rubber cement and best team thinner or, or, uh, uh, benzene, but we used the thinner, which was essentially a benzene, probably with a something else even more toxic. Anyway. Right. <laughs> and uh, we had a big, we had a big spray booth, so those were already wired in. But I mixed up all the you know back then you just got uh, universal coloring tints and mixed it up with the rubber cement and the thinner to make kind of the base, and then you would thin it out depending on how you wanted to paint the creature. Did you want it really opaque? Did you want it um, to be um, translucent and do washes? And so that's one of the other, you know, so again, a lot of stuff setting up that wasn't super creative, but I had, I had the knowledge because <laughs> I, I, I'd done, I, I'd done a lot of painting. I'd been trained as a oil paint, well, not trained, but I had oil painting classes so I could mix color by eye. That was one of the skills, innate skills I had. I had a photographic memory until puberty hit. And then I've always, <laughs> but, uh, I could mix color by eye. So I would, you know, fill, we'd have these maquettes that everyone was painted with acrylics just, you know, on the, on the Sculpey. And then I had to go and mix up those colors to paint those creatures. Uh, and so that was one of the jobs. So at the end of the shoot, we probably had like 50 different colors 
And some of them were just, you know, raw umber and raw sienna, which were good for washes. And then there were specific colors for like the Gamorian guards had two colors of green and a pink around the mouth. And so, you know, labeling those and setting all up. So a lot of technical stuff, but uh, it was great. It was fun. It was a, when I started ILM, there's a crew picture of ILM in 1981 and it's like 72 people. I mean, it was so small. Um, And ILM, the specific building itself what is it 3210 kern or whatever it was um had a bot auto body shop was still part of it like one of the bays was still being rented um but within a year uh that while jedi was happening they took on they started taking on other movies particularly spielberg's movies so we had um uh, et and poltergeist came in and then and then it just kind of the floodgates opened to the Star Trek movies and the ILM became a, an entity other than George Lucas's effects facility. And that's when it really expanded. And um, yeah, that was it was a crazy time. But there was a great quote from George back in the day at, at those days. And he said, give these guys enough pizza and beer and they can do anything. <laughs> and it, was, it was a very it was it was very collegiate. I mean, you get on the PA system and, you know, we had funny nicknames for everybody and. And uh, I remember Tommy Santamon would when he would page you, he would say it was Tom Spina. Be like Tom Spina, dial three one nine. Tom three one nine. And you know it was it was like cheesy radio. It was just fun. And, and this again, like you felt like you'd gone away to uh, art camp, and because everyone there was incredibly creative or incredibly technically skilled, either machinists or optical printer operators or artists. And and uh, I, I was like in heaven. I I. I wouldn't trade it. I got paid nothing. I mean, the money was ridiculously low, but it was such a great a learning experience because you just suck it up by, well, at least I do by osmosis, just seeing what, uh, you know, great a sculptor or animator or artist or painter, how they work and what just, I was obviously a garrulous fellow. I think I've filled up this entire time with blather, but I would ask a lot of questions and try not to be too annoying, but most people like to talk about you know, what they do and why they do it. So I just, I had a blast. I, uh, like I said, I wouldn't have traded it for anything. And then I did some other stuff. (laughs) Well, another fun story that again, kind of blows me away. We had to do spot checking on dailies for the creatures, both in uh, the desert in Yuma and in Brookings, Oregon. And that meant either getting up earlier. Well, it wasn't early. There was no way they were showing dailies at six in the morning. So you had to stay later. So you'd leave the set. Like in Yuma, it was like a 45-minute drive from the hotel to the set. And, you know, a good 12, 13-hour day. And then another 40-minute drive. So at the end of time, you, you were getting up at five in the morning, getting on the bus at six, having had breakfast. And then you'd get set at seven and you'd work till six at night. And then you'd be back at the hotel at seven. So then if you had to go watch dailies, it was another hour of work. And so Phil had done this in Yuma. He had spot checked because we had the skiff guards. It was pretty much skiff guards. And are you looking for, you know, open seams or a bad zipper or whatever? Exactly. We're just focusing on our job to make sure and also to answer questions like they go, okay, the Sarlacc, you know, the the pedals on the sphincter aren't, they're bouncing too much. Can you, you know, set them up or can you move them more? Like, all right. So answer those kind of questions or then exactly right. We saw, we saw a seam on the back of a head or something. Uh, because there was so much going on with, with all the other aspects. Oh yeah. So Phil had done that and he did not enjoy giving up that extra hour of his life. So in Yuma, he asked if I would do it 
<laughs> so I was like, are you kidding? Sure. I'll go to dailies. Like I knew what they were and I'm really happy to see the process. So at the end of the day, again, it wasn't an hour. I think we were maybe 20 minutes, 30 minutes to the, uh, back from the location to the, to the hotels we were staying. So we'd go to this, um, I guess it was, I don't remember, actually, I don't recall where they were, but they had set up a screening room in one of the hotels, like in a little, you know, conference room. And so it was George Lucas, Marsha was there at least a few of the times, uh, Robert Watts, the producer, Howard Kazanjian sometimes, although Howard, I don't think was there much in Yuma. I mean, sorry, in uh, Brookings, uh, the DP and Richard Marquand. I think our first AD and then me. <laughs> yeah. so, but like the, uh, all these department heads and this little schmo from Van Nuys who was watching because there was so much Ewok stuff going on and they wanted someone to, again, the two things I did was like, make sure that, you know, if a hand didn't fall off or there wasn't an eye showing, but also they would say who's in, especially the first week, who's the, the Ewok in that reddish costume. And I'm like, Oh, that's Debbie Carrington. They're like, all right, let's earmark her and use her for this thing. Cause they just could tell, within a few days, like who's a good actor in the suit. And so I just was pinching myself every day. I was like, I get to go and sit and listen to Richard Marquardt and George Lucas discuss shots and, and, you know, and with the, the first AD and, and what they're going to do the next day. And so just, I don't have, I mean, my, the only story I remember from it has nothing to do with movie making. It was Marsha was visiting and uh, this is, they were still together, obviously. Um, and she said, oh, George. So it was, I think it was either before or after we'd seen the dailies. And she's like, George, I, I saw your favorite restaurant is, is in town. And I was like, oh, my gosh. What, you know, what is George? Is it lobster or something? You know, what's his favorite restaurant? And he's like, oh, really? And she's like, yeah, there's a Wendy's down there. <laughs> and, and, and he was, you know, he was like, yay. He was excited. Um, and I, I mean, it kind of made me love him more, you know, it's like, yeah. he's always said he's a guy from, was it Modesto who likes fast, you know, like race cars. And he was still that guy. There was no and fast food, apparently <laughs> no pretension. And even later people up in Marin and when I left, it was back in LA. People say they, the, the place you would see George most was like Johnny Rockets or che Chevy's Mexican grill. It just <laughs> was never a, a, you know, an S theater, a, a, a fancy man. Um, but, uh, you know, he would, again, in smaller groups, he was funny and, and uh, a bit enigmatic, I think, because he doesn't, he doesn't do a lot of interviews and stuff, but, uh, a lot, you know, easygoing guy. But that was amazing, just watching how a film, that scale, I mean, at that time, that was the biggest movie, I think, that had ever been made in terms of crew and, and locations and all that. Just the sheer complexity of what they pulled off in that movie uh, especially given the time and the limitations of technology and just, just the, the compositing that was necessary. Like, you know, nowadays it's easy. I mean, I, yeah, clearly it's not easy, but it's so much easier that it's, you know, it's the technical problems are way smaller. The technical problems now are like, Oh, you know, a pixel is dead or something. Right. It's not, Oh, the, the elements didn't line up and then we have to reshoot the whole thing. Yeah, yeah. Everything's fixable now. Yeah, well, because 90% of it's not even filmed. It's just generated. So it's it's all generation problems, not uh, filming problems. I mean, with, with the model shots and all that. The space battle at the end of Jedi is still one of the most incredible things ever to put on film. And yeah. it just works so well and it's mind-boggling 
to I think Gabe Gabe and I went to a panel at Celebration Anaheim where what was it was Dennis Murin was Dennis Murin. Yeah. yeah and he broke down that whole end space battle Jedi and he's just like this is the most challenging thing we ever did and I'm going to tell you why in insane detail well and he and Ken Ralston are geniuses I mean. Ken, to, in my mind, I mean, Dennis is a genius. Ken is like a triple genius because he not only can do shots like that, he can, he can draw and paint and sculpt. He literally is a uh, – what's the term? A um, Well, he's a master of many skills, but there's a – A renaissance man? No, it's a it's like oh, – right. I tried. Savant? <laughs> yeah, like a savant. That's probably a good word. He, he really can do anything. I, I – I told him when I said, if I ever get to be a producer, I'm going to hire you to direct you know, a movie. And he's funny and he's got incredible timing. He's a great cartoonist. He's a caricaturist. He's just one of those people I was kind of always in awe of. And he left ILM and ran Sony Imageworks for years. And I think he's retired now or he's a consultant there. And he just lives in a beautiful cabin somewhere up in Northern California and paints and does whatever he wants. But um, yeah, there I mean, a bunch of remarkable people there. You don't You don't end up at a place like that. Uh, for and stay for very long um, if you don't have mad skills, as the kids today like to say. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, just weird. I love a bunch of random stories, but nothing. Uh, it's better if you ask questions, I guess, or else it's just going to turn into me going. And then, then I drank too much and threw up in the C three PO head. <laughs> Do you know what Richard Marquand's favorite fast food restaurant was? <laughs> uh, no, but he was a fancy man. He was a. Uh, he was fun to watch. He was very dancerly. It's hard to do over, you know, just audio, but he would, I, I, I hate to do the word. It's like he would direct in vogue at the same time. He would, he would use his arms and his body and kind of gesture. I'd love to go over this with Mark. Cause you know, obviously Mark was there a lot and, uh, and Carrie's gone and Harrison's probably not super chatty. So Mark would probably be the best one to <laughs> reminisce about the way Richard directed. But I just remember watching because I, I like to study people when you're on set and you're just sitting there quietly waiting to, you know, fix the problems. And uh, he would kind of like rub his hands over his head and like put his put his hands over his cheeks and like, mm, you know, he was very animated, very fun to watch. And then, you know, George was the the opposite. He would just kind of stand there with his hands in his pockets. Um, and just kind of talk in a quiet voice, and, you know. And, but George was there almost the whole time, um, which was interesting because you know he was not technically the director; he was the producer. And, and Richard directed it. I'm not suggesting otherwise, but George had a very uh, close, you know, I want to say leash, but he was he was there making sure that things went the way he wanted. I remember there's a story about the Sarlacc tentacle that's I've told before. So this is all, I'm trying to think of something new that no one's heard before that I can actually say that, you know, won't come back and haunt me. It's a, nobody listens to this show, so it's fine. <laughs> oh, okay, great. Well, anyway, so a bunch of you guys, I got really drunk and we said, hey, let's go skinny dipping. And well, I just got to tell you, um, the paternity test came back and I was not the father's. <laughs> <laughs> um, people thought that happened. We did go out drinking with the Ewoks. That was funny. One night in Brookings, Oregon, and like the one bar or one of the two bars, I think like 25 little people and I marched in and just sat down and started drinking and carousing. And I think the locals thought they'd had too much to drink. <laughs> I mean, they all knew, you know, what was, uh, oh, I've got a story. Okay. Sorry. I didn't mean to clap right in your mic. Um, here's a story, which is a little, 
it's a little racy. Um, we had a PA on set who was younger than I was, 18. He literally was just legal. And he was a lovely kid, like right out of high school. He might have still been in, well, yeah, like just graduating high school. And um, he was one of our local PA hires. And so it was one of the last days they, as a gag, they sent him around looking for Michael Hunt. <laughs> they shortened the name to Mike. <laughs> which is an old joke for the newbie. And so he went around a set of about 360 people scattered about over two or three acres asking if anyone had seen Mike Hunt. And and it was a British crew, so that word is, is less offensive to the Brits than the Americans. And he had no idea. Everyone was giggling, and, and he didn't know why it was funny because he was this nice young kid. And then at uh, lunchtime, they uh, they brought him up and they gave him like they gave him a cash a prize or something. And I, I wish I remember the exact thing, but they kind of you know told him what he'd been saying, and he just was kind of like what. <laughs> kind of, you know, it endeared him to everyone uh, for that uh, for that thing. So that was kind of a a set prank that they pulled on him that I I couldn't believe worked, but he was very earnest. So I don't think he even questioned what he was saying. I said, well, the next day he should be looking for. A, Michael Hawk. <laughs> but, um, I did not do that. Because I thought, well, that would be the uh, But I think he would be on to the joke. One would hope. Yeah. Just lots of shenanigans. So you, you worked on Star Wars, you, you went on to Star Trek, you, you worked with the Muppets. Yeah, well, ILM started doing the Star Trek film. So I worked on two, just casting and molding uh, and maybe helping to paint uh, David Sosala. Uh, he was the fellow who did the, the yeoman's job and got the, he was kind of the creature shop guy for a while. Uh, the the seti eels and the ear bit. And then on three, I was involved in building the worms, uh, the bacteria that kind of grew out of Spock's coffin. And then I was on set. There's actually a picture of me in a Cinefex from back then in a white Tyvek suit with my arm up one of the, um, their worms. We just called them space worms that attacks, uh, Chris, Christopher Lloyd. And he, he like chokes it with his hand. And so I'm there covered in methicel, which is basically movie slime. Uh, and then I puppeteered the Klingon dog. I didn't make the dog, the lizard dog that was, um, uh, what was his name? What was Chris Lloyd's character? Korg? Commander Krug. 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 Yeah. So I was underneath his seat with my right arm through this dog, dog lizard, uh, for a few days. That was an interesting job. Those are all Trying. my some of my favorite parts of Star Trek Three. Boom, boom, boom. You just named them all. Yeah. Off, so. Well, and 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 Ken Ralston designed that that lizard dog, which I love that design. Oh. Um. Yeah, it was great. Uh. So I puppeteered him, and then. Well, then I uh, then I did a bunch of rock videos with David Fincher, who was the other youngest guy at ILM, and we started a production company up in the Bay Area doing rock videos. And we did a Rick Springfield video called "Bop to You Drop," where I designed an alien and played the alien, <laughs> and um, was production designer on it. And Dave was director. We kind of brainstormed it together, and then moved back to LA. Dave started. I uh, moved down soon after and started um, at uh, uh, Propaganda. And I went back to UCLA to study computer graphics because I thought, well, that's going to take over this business. Even then, because Pixar uh, was to, was growing at ILM. They'd already done the Star Trek uh, – what is it? The Genesis – the Genesis device. The, uh, 
the uh, CG, you know, animation of that. And they'd done the, um, the, the stained glass guy for uh, young Sherlock Holmes. I was studying computer animation and someone came through the animation workshop at UCLA and said, Leonard Nimoy is looking for an assistant for Star Trek four, somebody with um, effects experience. And I literally had just left ILM like six, nine months earlier and knew everybody. So I went and auditioned or, you know, met him and, and basically was tailor made for the job because I knew filmmaking and I knew everyone in ILM and he wanted someone who uh, knew the effects world who would give him the straight dope. Cause he felt like he'd been given a runaround between ILM and the producers. He just didn't know what was doable when they said, Oh, we can't do that. And he wanted someone on his team who would say, uh, you can do that. Or, you know, at least I don't know what you're going to pay for it, but this is it, whatever. I, I, he never actually explained exactly what he wanted me to, and, you know, but I had the, the perfect resume for the job. So that became, uh, I became associate producer on it because I'd been doing so much. Well, Le- Leonard was amazing in that he gave me so much um, responsibility. And at this point, I was like 23. <laughs> um, again, I, you know, and Leonard was my age. Now, actually, no, this was Leonard was 53. So we're actually 30 years apart. Exactly. And um, so he gave me all this responsibility to be basically the hand, you know, after Game of Thrones, the hand of the king. Like I would go to meetings for him and say what he wanted me to say or, you know, get the gather the information and, and tell it back to him so he could focus on what he wanted to focus on. So it was an amazing job. So they gave me, he said he wanted to make me associate director, but the DGA wouldn't allow it. So he said, you know, you can call anything a producer. So I became an associate producer and got the, and I, I, I asked to do the punk on the bus job, uh, that gag. This, it was in the script, but I said, I wanted to play it. Cause I'd had, I was in a punk band in high school. Um, so yeah, so that was fun and I uh, had a great experience. I mean, I just kind of went from great experience to great experience. I did a, uh, and then Gremlins was before Trek Four, and that was with Chris Wallace, who's still a really good friend. Um, so I helped design. I designed the paint job on the Gremlins and set up the paint shop like I'd done on Jedi, and I designed and painted their eyes. I painted like 120 pairs of eyes, um, and then left because I didn't want to run the, the paint and mold shop for the whole movie. But then when they were in LA, I did a couple of weeks of puppeteering on some of the big group scenes. And then Gremlins 2, I got to, I did puppeteering for like a week for the big group scene at the end and then did a bunch of voices, which was a blast. Um, yeah, just a weird career. And then I met Jim Henson and started working with him as an idea guy. And that's probably a whole nother podcast working with Jim Henson and the Henson Company. Going back to Chris, how great is the stuff he's doing right now? Oh, I mean, I, I, I got to go work on one of them uh, just this last weekend. But it's amazing. I mean, this guy is a, a juggernaut. Like, you know, when you ask – someone ever asks you, well, if you could do anything you want, if you didn't have to work, what would you do? And he does exactly what he did when he had to work. He yeah. just makes cool little movies and puppets and creatures and, and sculpts. And they're all fun. They're not trying to be realistic. They're they're definitely – a. I mean, he can do that, but uh, he just – been working on this it's just all heart and character it's like yeah fun is the right word like everything i'm seeing uh it's just so fun yeah well it's it's, he's doing a trailer for a a fake movie called the apes of frankenstein and the idea (laughs) is that frankenstein experimented on a bunch of apes before he made the the human and uh so he's made this trailer it's probably going to be six to eight minutes long of a bunch of scenes you know that, that don't actually tie into a real movie but he's getting such a great response for it. I was saying, dude, you should just kickstart this and, you know, get, 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 
half a million, a million bucks from Kickstarter and make this movie. Uh, whether he wants to undertake that process or not, I don't know. He's still obsessing on making a great trailer, but it's so much fun. And he's just, I mean, he's one of my best, best friends. And, but even if I wasn't his friend, I would still be incredibly impressed. He and Rick Baker don't know how to retire. I mean, Rick just does a painting an hour. Does he, he does these one to three hour paintings every day and does makeups and does makeups on himself, on his wife, on his kids. Um, does a CG, you know, a Frankenstein seed or a right, the little stop motion stuff. Yeah. They, they 3d prints. I mean, he just giant miniature sets. Yeah, like, they, just, they don't know how to relax. They just keep making. Well, that is how they relax. <laughs> yeah. Well, exactly. They don't know how to not do. I, you're right, exactly. They, I actually, it's funny. I I say one of the things you know with with most of the people I have hired for me uh, for for my shops and stuff, and it's just kind of like, all right, if I don't hire this person, would they just be doing this anyway? Because if so, then I'll consider it, and if not, then I'm probably not going to bother. Star Wars, Star Trek, Muppets. Who has the best parties? Oh man. Well, probably due to my youth, ILM had the best parties because everyone was like 30 and younger and we would drink to oblivion. I remember the rap party for Jedi. I woke up on the uh, hostess's front lawn at four in the morning with her niece passed out. We've been making out and the sprinklers went on. (laughs) (laughs) So we, we got thoroughly drenched and I walked her to her car and then I drove home so bombed that the next morning at noon, I threw up pure tequila for like like a half a gallon of it. I mean, it was just because I was 19 and indestructible. Um, I guess I was 20 at that point, but um, that was a pretty amazing George and George threw great Christmas parties. Um, and there's some pretty great Halloween parties. Jim Henson's parties were more elegant. When Jim was alive, he would host these amazing events at like grand ballrooms and, in, in, in hotels in New York and everyone, you know, it'd be a costume party usually. And, so I only went to two, uh, but those were grand affairs. But I think for just getting crazy, the ILM ones were uh, probably the best. <laughs> Star Trek, we didn't really have – I mean, we just had a rap party. It was, you know, on Paramount lot and it was a very formal affair. And it was lovely, but it wasn't like, oh, my God, the stories. Uh, yeah, the, the ILM one, the hostess broke her leg or her ankle Um like two people ended up getting married, two people ended up getting divorced. It was just like <laughs> yeah. all in the same night. All the same. All well, all because of that night. I would say, yeah, it was a and the and the leg break was just because you were using that polyfoam again. Like you think <laughs> right. you'd have learned right. after no, the starlight. Broke her leg or ankle because she was dancing on her coffee table. <laughs> well, well, it was the thing was it was a tequila party specifically tequila and margaritas now i was 20 and not of legal drinking age but that didn't stop me or them and so i just thought tequila was like oh it's funny tasting beer you know you just drink it like <laughs> and you know for our younger viewers our younger listeners uh tequila has a habit of sneaking up on you you feel fine you just feel great like a little silly a little a little buzzed and then suddenly wham it hits you and so that what kind of happened with me and I think half the people at that party is uh, it was it was legendary. <laughs> it was not on Lucasfilm property, so no one could ever get no one could see it. But. We've all been there. We've all been there. There's a picture of me on the deck gun. There's a couple pictures of me on the deck gun on Java's barge, and Carrie was just 
a fun person to hang out with between takes or just in general. And there was a day when we're up shooting inserts with her on the deck gun and there's like, you know, guys in suit and creature stuff behind her. And we were sitting around waiting for camera to move or something, you know, all these times as movie sets, as most of you guys know, and maybe a lot of listeners do, it's hurry up and wait. So it's like, you know, it's, it's all intense focus. And then an hour of waiting, especially when you're on location, you've got to move things all over the place. So we were sitting there with, with Carrie and the still photographer and Carrie's stunt double and myself and somebody else. And we're just hanging out on the deck next to the deck gun. SCTV had become really popular because it was 1981 or 82, I guess at this point it was 82. And, um, the, I think it was the, um, still photographer had these SCTV buttons like I love SCTV or so Carrie stuck one on her butt (laughs) (laughs) on the bikini bottom uh, underneath the kind of the overhanging, I don't know you call it veil or something. And there's pictures of me. So Carrie's kind of got one leg up on the deck gun, her back to camera, but she's looking over her shoulder and I'm sitting next to her pointing to the button on her butt. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And I asked Lucasfilm, the still department, because I was giving a talk and I said, I, I wouldn't show that to anyone, but I would love a copy of that, that, you know, at least they could show at my funeral. <laughs> um, and uh, they, they never responded. <laughs> I was very specific, like, this is the picture, because I, I, that's a memory you don't forget. But she was really fun to, to hang out with. And she would go dancing, uh, the, she and the stuntman and I and a few of the other younger people who didn't have wives or children or just were under 30 would go out to like in Yuma, Arizona, the nightclubs were open. I forget because California, it's right on the border. So the Arizona didn't have um, daylight savings. So it was an hour earlier or later. In other words, the bars were open another hour. So we'd go dancing in one state and then just drive across the street to the other bars in the other state. <laughs> and uh, the drinking age in that, I think it was Arizona, was 18. This was back in the days when there was different laws in different states so i could drink so we'd go over to these bars and go drinking and dancing and and she was always a hoot and just up for anything so she was a lot of fun mark had already had his kid then so he was being a responsible parent and harrison just kind of harrison had a wife and kids and i think either hung out with them or just kept himself but but carrie carrie was just a ton of fun as as that's not surprising anybody but it was it was kind of a neat experience to actually be able to hang out and and just have fun again 19 yeah, <laughs> I was well, I was twenty. I think she was twenty six. I think she was like six years older than I am, or four. Years. I don't know if she was twenty four. Twenty. I, you know, I'm sure you could look it up. But were you even in- intimidated by this at all? Were you ever just like, oh my god? Like I was. Well, I, because I grew up in Hollywood, I knew that you don't gomer out in front of actors because like makes them uncomfortable and you look like an idiot. So I, I think, and at that point, I'd worked on the movie for a year. Um, and I was definitely part of the crew and I felt like it, but I, uh, I wasn't intimidated. I think Harrison was most intimidating only because he was just kind of quiet, you know, and I wouldn't say he's dour, but he was just, you know, I mean, not super garrulous, not like looking to hang out and, you know, chat. He was Harrison Ford. Yeah, exactly. He was kind of like, yeah, uh huh. Okay. Um, where and Mark was incredibly sweet and chatty, and he was a big movie nerd, so you could talk to him about sci-fi and you know Star Wars, and he was great. And then Carrie was just sort of fun; like she was just sassy, you know. Again, not I'm not telling anybody in, that she hasn't written about herself. Um, 
so it was kind of an interesting triad, you know, triad. You've got the, you know, Harrison's kind of the, the serious father type and Mark and Carrie are the, the kids. Um, and Mark sort of just like, I mean, the, I guess the casting was appropriate because <laughs> Mark was sort of innocent, and nice and, and, and earnest and, and Carrie was sassy and snarky and everyone was, you know, playing their roles both on screen and, and in their real lives. Um, well, I was just, I don't know. Yeah, I, did. I thought about doing a movie. Did you ever see the film My Favorite Year? Oh, yeah, Peter O'Toole. Yeah, Peter O'Toole and the guy who went on to do uh, Perfect Strangers, Mark, I can't remember his last name, Mark something. Um, I'm sure everyone listening will go, oh, it's Mark Hunter. And I'll be like, all right, anyway. <laughs> um, I want to do that that movie, but my favorite year working on Jedi. In other words, starting out as a kid in Van Nuys. And getting the call and going, you know, starting from the, you know, meeting everybody to ending up at the rap party, <laughs> passed out on the lawn. Um, and just, just have a, a buddy of mine did a movie called 525-77. It was about his journey going to LA and meeting all the effects people because Star Wars affected him. But I was like, I want to do my movie about actually being on the crew, but I don't know. I mean, I'd have to get Disney and Lucasfilm, I assume, to. I mean, I could write a book. That's yeah, but if you do a movie, then you get to make a bunch of monsters. Well, yeah, and you and you get to, <laughs> get to relive my my glory days. Yeah. Anyway, so so stay tuned for that. I assume you would play yourself, but just to, just as <laughs> is, no makeup, no CGI. You're just you now reliving. I would cast. I already figured out Scott Adsit would be a great Phil Tippett. If you know Scott, you know who he is. No, why am I blacking out on who that is? Oh, Google him. He's great. He was on 30 Rock. He played the writer. They had writer on 30 Rock. Oh, yeah. Okay. Kind of looks like Phil Tippett, and he can play that kind of range of of emotion that Phil would play. I always thought he'd be great. Well, who plays you young? Yeah, and then uh, probably someone like a a young George Clooney to play me, of course. Oh, that's right. (laughs) Donald Logue, like 30 years ago, would have played me, or uh, I don't know. It depends on when you make the movie. It's fun. It's weird. Here's the weird thing. And this is the first time I've, I've articulated this on a podcast. It's so weird to talk about the first 10, 15 years of my career when I've been working for 37 years. But the stuff I just did isn't that interesting. I mean, I did two live shows, the Hollywood Bowl and then in O2 in London. But it's such a different world than, you know, Star Wars. And then the show that I just – they just announced on Netflix um, – I can't talk about because Netflix won't let us say anything about it. It's called The Curious Creations of Christine McConnell, and it's got creatures, and it's it's kind of a maker's show, more like kitchen stuff. It's like Martha Stewart kind of making, but it's it's. I always say if uh, Morticia Adams were Martha Stewart and had a show. Oh, wow. So it's fun. There's creatures, and yeah, but I, that's all I can say, really, is the name, and that's got creatures and making stuff. Hopefully it'll be out by uh, the the – middle of like October, maybe around Halloween of, uh, of this year, 2018. If it's got creatures, we're down. That's all you need to say. Yeah, no, yeah, anyone who likes monsters or even make it, cause she does again, it's like Martha Stewart. If she were Morticia or Morticia Adams, she makes darkly delicious desserts, I think is the, the catchphrase, but she makes cookies that look like spiders and they really look like spiders, like brown recluse spiders, um, or desserts. They're not even cookies. They're more like candies and a peanut, but um, or a hazelnut, but it, it, the stuff she does is, is remarkable. And she's a real interesting character. She's like six feet tall. She's stunningly beautiful. She looks like a model. 
And she's a total autodidact. She taught herself how to do all these things. And she makes cakes and then airbrushes them and, and, and makes uh, uh, sugar glass into eyeballs and, and window panes for gingerbread houses. But her, her level of skill, anyone who's uh, into making stuff, um, whether it's creatures or will we'll dig it because she uses a lot of creature techniques like airbrushing and sculpting. Cho- I didn't know there was sculpting or molding chocolate that you can sculpt just like you would with Sculpey, but you don't, you, it just, uh, it's kind of pliable. And then as it, it tastes better. Yeah. It tastes much better. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So every, everything you can do with, with clay and Sculpey, you can do with an edible chocolate and then paint it and glaze it and do all the things, stick hair in it. That's edible. I mean, it, what she does is incredible. And that's, what's fun about the show. So I think it, it's, it's a cooking show that monster kids would like. And, and anyone who's even into cosplay and all that, I think would get a kick out of it. So, um, but yeah, so the weird thing is back to my original point is I'm talking about the first 15 years of my life. I'm like, God, is it just, nothing's interesting's happened, but. I, I just like the fact that when we originally talked to Tom, Tom had like the best life ever and your life is way better than Tom's life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. No, all right, I'm Tom. right there with you on this one. I love Tom's life. He takes all the all the stuff I worked on and, and makes it look pretty again. Right. <laughs> well, I just didn't want to do all the heavy lifting today. It was you know, they came to me. They were like, "Oh, we're doing a thing on Jedi. Talk about the creatures. Why don't you come on?" I'm like, "Oh, can we just get Kirk? Because you could like <laughs> ask him what he does, and then I could just kind of sit yeah. back for like yeah. an hour or something, you know?" Yeah, we're all taking it easy tonight, except for Kirk. Oh, it's fantastic. We just. Let's just do this every Thursday. Wait, is it Thursday? Tom, here's something I'm wondering. What? And we didn't ask you this last time we talked to you. Do you remember seeing Return the Jedi for the first time? What What were your feelings watching Return the Jedi? So I uh, I saw it at the Mid Island Plaza uh, in Hicksville, New York. Um, I actually we ducked out of school a little bit early that day. Uh, my folks. Uh, pulled me out and we went to the theater and there was a line from the front of the theater all the way around to the back of the theater. And then my parents just kept driving. And that was (laughs) one of the great sadnesses in my life. Um, But uh, about, I want to say it was less than a week later. uh, We we went back and, and did see it at that same theater in 70 millimeter Dolby. uh, Cause I remember that was on the sign and, um, I was blown away. I absolutely loved it as a kid. Um, I still love it. I, I, you know, I think uh, at the time I was sure that it was the greatest movie ever made and it had surpassed the previous two entries in the trilogy. And I've, I've since gone to the release order as my order of favorite. Um, But it was just, uh, it was just everything a 10 year old Tom wanted to see in a movie, you know? (laughs) Um, and Jabba's palace in particular, I immediately set about trying to remake the movie in my basement. Uh, I turned the basement sofa into Jabba's dais. My grandfather procured me a roll of, uh, you know, that egg crate foam that you would put on a mattress. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. He got me a roll of that. It was blue, so my job of the hut was going to be blue. Um, and uh, I started patterning that into a puppet and trying to figure out 
how did they do this? How did, how did this get made? It's, uh, um, and eventually, oh, uh, from Star Wars to Jedi, the making of a saga came out. Um, and I don't know what year that was released. It's, that's a little fuzzy to me, but it was pretty early. I, it might've been right after Jedi. I don't know. Um, uh, certainly the, the, what was that creatures special, uh, that classic creatures. Yeah. That wasn't, there you go. Yeah. So like, certainly the, that came out and I saw that it was that aired on, on television. So I caught it once, you know, uh, we didn't have a VCR at the time and, uh, but eventually we got a VCR and one of the first things that we recorded on a VCR off of like channel, uh, one of the public access channels here or not public access, public television, uh, was doing a fundraiser and they ran from Star Wars to Jedi, the making of a saga with these 10 minute long tote bag sale breaks, uh, that were excruciating <laughs> to me. Um, but they had that whole section on the creature shop. And uh, strangely, they neglected to talk about Kirk, but, uh, you know, I'm sure he was there. Um, but uh, it was just incredible to me to, to see a Gamorrean guard without his skin and to see those mechanics under there and to see the interviews with, uh, oh, gosh, uh, um, who were the two guys in Java? It was uh, Dave and was Dave it? Barkley. Yeah, and Mike Edmonds. Well, yeah, Mike in the tail, backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards. Um, the best. Who's the other? Uh, you have the left hand and the right hand. Um, why can't I think of the other guy in the? Was it Mike Quinn or Dave Barkley? It wasn't Tim Rose. Tim was doing salacious. Anyway, the you know just going the they they kind of took you through Jabba and who did what on that puppet and I had seen oh so Kirk, do you remember the the special? of Muppets and men. Yeah. Um, yeah, they, they went behind the scenes on basically on an episode of the Muppet show and they showed the Viking, uh, scene that was burned into my brain after watching that and fascinated me to no end that the lengths that they would go to, to through to create an illusion and the combination of, you know, two people to create one creature or one character um, and, uh, and really, you know, the, the Muppets and star Wars just, just cemented that love for me of, um, it really is just illusion creating, creating that illusion of life, whether it be through puppets, through makeup, through monsters, through computers. Um, and, uh, so yeah, that's, that's a very long answer for what you were after there, but it, uh, it, yeah, it, it made a big impact on me right away. Um, and, uh, like you guys, I wanted to know more about what was going on in those dark corners that I couldn't quite see. Hey guys, I got a boogie. It's, it's, uh, 15 minutes past. I thought, Oh yeah, no problem, man. No, 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 no. You're free to go whenever you want. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. I, I'm running. Every- Hasn't he given you enough? All the other stories would make this R rated and we don't want to go. No, there. this was, no. yeah. Thank you so much for all the time. We'll just do that after hours at a convention yeah. someday. Yeah, exactly. Buy, buy me a drink and you'll hear all the crazy stuff. <laughs> the really good stuff. I was a good kid until I hit 40. And then, it, oh, it happened to all of us. So. Now I'm just a debaucher. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. <laughs> Bye-bye. Yeah, so so Kirk had to boogie. But Tom, you, you've had some stuff going on recently, right? We've been busy. Yeah, it's uh, it's a little crazy. Um, 
We're actually, by the way, I, you know, I don't know if I, I did talk about uh, earlier what we look for in hiring folks. We did actually just uh, post up a couple of we're hiring things. So if you're in the Long Island area and you're looking for even, you know, if you're a graphic artist or a CG artist or uh, someone who does practical creature stuff or just someone who wants to work in an office where cool stuff happens, uh, we are hiring uh, some temp help to, to crew up for a bit and get a bunch of stuff done the next six months or so. Uh, so folks can reach out to us on the website. I hope you don't mind me no. posting that ahead on the podcast. No. Feel free to cut it out. No. <laughs> um, but no, we've been, yeah, we've been nuts. I, you know what? I mean, uh, I guess the most Return of the Jedi related thing that we've got uh, was our Rancor wheelchair, which are words that don't kind of go together normally, but then you see it and you go, Oh, of course. Um, so yeah, we, uh, have, so had you guys before, I, I know you're aware of it now, but had you heard of magic wheelchair prior to this, the San Diego project? I had not. No, no. I think I, the first time I heard about it was when I think you were talking about it with us last time. It could have been, they, you know, so I met, uh, Ryan uh, Weimer, who runs, uh, who who founded Magic Wheelchair uh, at Salt Lake Comic Con, um, where actually got to spend a lot of great time with Kirk Thatcher. Uh, we did a panel on Return of the Jedi and the Creatures with me, him, and Pablo, and uh, and I might have bought him a drink or two at the uh, at the bar to hear some stories. But um, the uh, I met the the uh, the man behind Magic Wheelchair, and they had done with. Uh, James Powell from Monster City Studios, a Jurassic Park themed wheelchair for a, uh, a real special kiddo. And they were wheeling this monstrosity of a costume, which was a velociraptor pulling a Jeep themed wheelchair behind it, um, oh, wow. which was just the coolest thing ever. And I had peripherally kind of heard of them, but um, you know, getting to see it firsthand and getting to meet Ryan and hearing his story, I it just immediately was, you know, let's let's go grab a bite and talk about how I can be a part of this because it's it's truly magic. Um, I I can't even begin to put into words uh, what the experience was like for our team and then everyone involved. Um, they. So Ryan has this thing. He's always, <laughs> everything is epic, you know? And he's, he was telling us, he's like, I got this idea. We're going to do this epic, epic Star Wars thing, man. It's going to be epic. And, you know, all the people that involved are just kind of like, you know, they sort of yes him, you know? They're like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's going to be epic. Great. Um, but he, he, he was not wrong. Uh, he pulled together. And, and uh, all of the people involved, uh, Christine Getman especially, uh, was just a monster when it came to coordinating. Uh, they got seven kids from all over the country, special kids in wheelchairs who, uh, you know, were huge Star Wars fans. Uh, they got the okay from Lucasfilm and coordinated that. They then took those seven kids and their families and flew them to San Diego Comic-Con, put them up in a hotel, got them tickets to a sold out Comic-Con show, which in its own right is a miracle. Uh, and then coordinated seven effect shops worth of, uh, effects guys, which is hurting cats at the best. Um, 
to build seven unbelievable i the word costumes doesn't cover it um because these are huge some of them um and if you go to our site if you go to tomspinadesigns.com and look at the news it'll be the second or third thing down by the time this airs and uh it's uh there are photos there of all of them there was um a jedi starfighter there was a tie silencer huge you know like eight feet long tie silencer built uh all around this kid's chair um there was uh, sean fields and his guys built a droidica that is essentially screen accurate and like seven feet tall and that one, that one was was amazing it's unbelievable. Um, there was a boga. There was Porg Island, which Rick Lazzarini made animated porgs f- for with uh, James Powell of Monster City Studios, who did some of the foam milling. And, um, oh, I've lost the name who did the foam carve on the island. But um, uh, well, who the heck else? Um, uh, there was – oh, there was ours. There was a, we did – so for our little guy, Liam, from New York and his family, the Cullen family – uh, who are just these really wonderful folks and huge Star Wars nerds like the rest of us. Um, and Liam is the most energetic kid I think I've ever met. Um, <laughs> we, they, we brought, um, they, they, luckily they were local. So we brought them to the studio and they dropped Liam on the floor at one point, not dropped him. Um, they carefully placed Liam on the floor. So, uh, Liam, um, is not paralyzed, but he was, uh, he was born with his legs, um, and his arms formed a little differently. And so he's had some surgery on his legs, but he still can't walk yet. They are, they're hopeful that, you know, down the line with years and years of therapy that he might get there. But, um, he definitely proves like you don't have to walk to move. They put this kid down on the floor within about four seconds. He was 40 feet away, scooting on his behind covered in shop dust from the floor and we're like oh he's gonna get dirty they're like he's fine <laughs> okay um, and he's just scooting around the studio like wow what's that wow that robot oh gosh that's scary you know <laughs> and just narrating life uh that whatever's going on around him he narrates it was hysterical um and so we he loved the rancor um and uh so uh we built him this massive life-sized rancor head in hand. And basically his chair is in the hand as if the rancor is holding him and about to take a bite and the head is hovering behind. And because it's a push chair, uh, we made the head in such a way that it hides the fact that his dad is pushing the chair and uh, he sees out the nose and the mouth. Um, And it was just, it was a lot of fun to build. But when we got to do the reveal at San Diego, uh, we had Adam Savage hosting with Ryan from the charity. Um, there was another group that came and had raised. Uh, they they gave the charity a check for over twenty grand uh, to kick off this reveal, and it was just none of us were expecting that, you know. And uh, it was such as this beautiful moment of so much love and outpouring for these seven kids, and all of this this culmination of effort by so many people and every one of these builds went above and beyond none of these were cop-outs none of these were people that had you know oh we'll just do a little something in our spare time like every one of them was someone's guts and heart and soul 
and to be able to pull the bed sheets off of them and reveal them for these kids and uh, hear the the crowd cheering for these little guys and girls and to then you know they they then took them on a parade uh, across the entirety of the, the entire length of the Comic-Con building, you know, the, the convention center in San Diego, which if anyone's been there, that's, it's a long ride, uh, people cheering the whole way. Um, it was, uh, yeah, I mean, not a dry eye. Every one of us just was affected by this and it's going to stay with us all forever. And, um, yeah. Uh, and there you go. I mean, there's, there's, you know, some of the magic of Return of the Jedi and certainly Star Wars that is still with us all to this day and continues to give back. It was and it was so cool to watch because even, you know, watching it on my phone or whatever in Michigan so far away, like I could feel the excitement and the positivity that was going on there. And I, I remember watching it being like, man, this is what it's all about. Absolutely. And it was uh you you just you everybody's rooting for these kids you know and uh watching like i just watching those reveals one by one uh oh the giant x-wing i didn't even mention uh, uh vinat's uh, a gigantic i, I want to say it's eight feet wide and like 10 feet long and all 3d printed and insane uh but uh yeah, just watching those sheets come off, watching the kids' faces, and seeing seeing the way that people now saw them in the costumes, um, which is is it's just something. I I was uh, I got to host a, a, the Star Wars show for for that segment, um, which was uh, they kept trying to get me to take my sunglasses off, and I kept trying to leave them on because I was like. Um, tear it up a lot here, guys. You know, <laughs> I, I interviewed Ryan and uh, accidentally and I legitimately accidentally left my sunglasses on. And they had been, yeah, they kept telling me to. And I'm so glad I did because, yeah, just the two of us talking, they cut before it got real bad, but there was blubbering. You know, it was, uh, it's just such a cool thing that he's started. And to see all of these talented artists, I mean, and you go down the line, the people that were involved in this thing, you had, uh, Adam Savage working on it, the tested team, Fawn Davis, his studio, Michael McMaster, Gordon Tarpley, um, James Powell from Monster City Studios, who lifted so much uh, of this project, carried so much of this project on his shoulders and his shop's uh, shoulders. Um, I, I, you know, Rick Lazzarini, who's a, a legend in the field of animatronics and puppets. Um, it just goes down the line and there's all and then you know smaller shops like ours and we're just everyone involved was uh i just uh like i said they everybody gave their all everybody put everything they had into it and the result was just spectacular and so so cool to be a part of yeah that's awesome it's, uh, yeah like you said it's the power of star wars just bringing people happiness. That's just the best. Absolutely. No, and it 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 created um, it created friendships, and it actually uh, you know you saw the kids connecting, you saw the families connecting, you saw the crews connecting with the different families, and 
you, the, the results of this that day and this effort are going to be felt for uh, probably a lifetime. And I'm not, I don't mean to be melodramatic about it, but I really think that there are, uh, there, this, this is life changing to a lot of these people and, uh, a lot of us. And it was just, yeah, super, super cool. So, uh, Kirk, what do you think about that? <laughs> <laughs> Typical. And these last points, too accurate for sand people. Only Imperial stormtroopers are so precise. All right, so that wraps up. An amazing conversation we had with Kirk Thatcher, Tom Spina. Unbelievable. If you want to reach Kirk Thatcher, you can find him on Twitter. He's at Kirk Thatcher. Nice and simple. And if you want to leave us a review on iTunes, you go over there, you write a little something nice, and we'll read it on an upcoming show. And it always helps the show a lot. Yep. And check out our website, BlastPointsPodcast.com. Check us out on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And don't forget to join the Blast Points Super Chill group on Facebook to uh, talk to other Blast Points crazies. And Tom, where can folks find you out there? Oh, they can find me at Tom Spina Designs and also at Regal Robot. And those are on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. Uh, I think even Pinterest. Follow us wherever you are most comfortable. And, uh, Sure. Tweet at us, mention us, uh, let us know what you thought of the show tonight, and uh, please do follow along. We have a lot of really cool stuff coming up with Regal Robot, uh, including new products coming out in just a few weeks. So first week of September, there's going to be cool new stuff. So definitely follow at Regal Robot, and you'll see all of that. And we all thank Kirk Thatcher once again for joining us, sharing some stories. Thank you. He's a force ghost. Thanks, Kirk. Thank you. Off in the cosmic force now. So, but yeah. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Yeah, thank you. May the force be with you. Goodbye, old friend. May the force be with you. wasted an hour and 20 minutes of your time no we're loving it when i when i suggested it i thought that he might have because he i mean he's done some interesting stuff and you'd think that a guy might have a story or two um but he just some people clam up you know they get nervous and they don't talk and i'm just i'm sorry may the force be with all of you